uh, let's just turn to Mark 4. And we are on part 6 of sword fencing with the devil. Sword fencing with the devil. Now we have looked through quite a bit. If you've missed the other ones, you can get it online and listen to it. Or you can get the CDs if you'd like. Uh, we'll ask Denise nicely. She might run them off for us sometimes. Sometimes she's up with the children at the minute, I think, is she? Yeah, she's not in the room at the moment. And here are the points we've looked at during the Lord's temptation in the wilderness. We've looked at it spiritually, all of it spiritually, by the way, spiritually, physically, mentally, scripturally. And today we want to look at it positionally. So you can write that down for your next study. We want to look at it positionally because it matters to every single one of us in our Christian walk for the attack of the enemy. So let's just read from verse 1, and then we'll stop and start where we need to after that. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus said unto him, It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Let us pray again. Heavenly Father, we ask you now in the wonderful and worthy name of the Lord Jesus, your only begotten Son, that you would come now by the power of your Holy Spirit and move upon me and upon every single one of us who are here or who would listen now or hereafter. Lord, may you strengthen them, encourage them, bless them, and build them up on their most holy faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the first four points were spiritually, physically looked at it, mentally, scripturally, and now this morning we want to look at point number five, positionally. Positionally. It's very important for you to know that when you're a Christian, when you're born again. Did you leave them down there, Glenn? Super, thank you. That when you are born again, who you are in Christ really matters. It's not who you are in CET or whatever church. It's who you are in Christ. Because when we look at this positionally, you're going to see it's in Christ that matters. And... You know, we hear about, you know, we, we are such and such a, a, a pastor, an elder, a deacon, a leader, a teacher, Sunday school, youth, whatever. And all of those are wonderful gifts to have for the church. But what matters and counts for every single one of us, no matter who you are, no matter where it's a shake in the hand at the door, until you come here to hear the word preached from the pulpit to the musicians or whoever it is, those who work tirelessly behind the scenes that nobody knows anything about. 
It's who you are in Christ because the devil will come to tempt. And he will come to try. And he will come to try and tear you down. Cause you to step back from walking with Christ. Positionally for the believer, we have looked at all these different things, all these different points. How, he, how it's all to do with the spirit. You're, he has brought in the spirit of the wilderness. So it's, this is off God. Sometimes in what we're going through, it's God allowing your metal to be tested. Sometimes it's allowing your armor to be tried. And the devil comes, and you have to remember, as the old Puritan once said, the devil is only God's ape. Your Father in heaven is the Almighty. How many Almighties are there? There's one. If there's two Almighties, then one Almighty on Almighties himself. Isn't that right? You can't have two Almighties. And he is Almighty, which means everything is beneath him. And everyone is beneath him. Notice, positionally, look at what it says in verse 5. Then the devil taketh him, the Lord Jesus, up into the holy city and setteth him on the pinnacle of the temple. Notice the position he puts Christ in. So positionally, we're in Christ, and where Christ is, so are we. And where we are, so is Christ. But notice the trial that Christ goes through here. He's on the pinnacle of the temple. I mentioned this a little bit uh, a couple of mornings in this study uh, back. People believe that on the hill where the temple was, Right in that corner, the pinnacle of the temple is where the priests would have come out. And it was approximately from the, from the, the, the Kidron Valley floor, it would have been 450 foot high. I think about this. So the devil, as it were, takes him up 450 foot to the pinnacle of the temple. Listen, to where the priests would come. That's important. Because the priests would come and they would look for the rising of the sun in the east. And as they look for the rising of the sun, the morning star. You know that first part when the sun comes over the earth and the sun bursts like a star across? That's the morning star. Christ is the morning star. He's the one who bursts across the land. He's the star of Jacob, he's called. Now notice this. They would have looked and as soon as they saw the morning star or the burst of sunlight. It would have been from Solomon's porch and what's known as the royal porch meeting together. And they would have taken and sounded the alarm, the trumpet or the shofar. And there they would have blown it and blown it right over where the Kidron Valley would be in the city of Jerusalem. Can you imagine what that would be like? Imagine that being your alarm clock. Eh? Wouldn't that be fantastic? I'm not being right in your ear now, but over the city. And notice this. This signifies that it was time for everyone to gather for the morning sacrifice was about to happen. And when Christ died on the cross, our time, or when he was, pardon me, crucified on the cross, our time would have been nine o'clock or so in the morning. And notice, this is the time of the morning sacrifice. And whenever this happened, the shofars would blow. And the people would come out to see 
this sacrifice or those around the temple would come with their lambs. And, and so the devil takes him to this pinnacle 450 foot up and, the, and basically what he's saying is, if you jump off, if you're the son of God, remember mentally he speaks to your mind to try and turn you. Either it is to pull you down or to puff you up. Remember that part? If you're the son of God, or since you're the son of God, if you jump off, everyone will know that you are Messiah. Jump off 450 foot because the word of God says, see the devil knows the word too, but he likes to twist it. If you jump off, his angels will come and catch you. He'll give charge to them, catch my son. Now I don't doubt for a moment if Jesus had have done that, would the father have done that because he said he would. But the thing is, either he's trying to play the mind of Christ to make him doubt his calling, which he couldn't do, or he's trying to puff up the mind of Christ to come out of his calling and go beyond his calling. And that's important, to puff him, his mind up. But he couldn't do that either. But you know the sad thing is, because of us and our weaknesses and we're not perfect, it happens to us. So we need the sword fence with the devil. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Remember that? So Jesus says, it is written. He takes out the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And that's how he defeats the devil. Notice, if you jump off, you'll not have to go to the cross. If you jump off, everyone will believe you. They'll see you. But you see, it's not by sight, but it's by faith that we believe in him. The just shall live by faith. And so... Of course, the Lord takes the sword out of the Spirit. And notice what he says. Verse 6, And he saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus saith unto him, It is written. Again. Notice. <laughs> Always. He's already used the sword. Now he says, I'm willing to use it again. Every time the devil comes, well, it's again and again and again and again and again. How is it we defeat him? With the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And notice this, he uses the sword of the Spirit. Now, being right, being in the right position with God is far better than being in the right position with man. No matter where you are, no matter what your work is, and I know we need our jobs, and I know we need to try and get along, and we need to try and work with people. I understand that. But when it comes where Caesar's taking over the things of God, then you have to render on the Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and on the God the things that are God's. And being right in a right position with God is far better than being in a right position with man. Man would believe you, Jesus, if you jump off here. Man would follow you. Man would exalt you. But here's what I've written down. I want you to grasp this for our lives. Don't try to give God a hand in how he plans to promote you. Don't try to give God got a hand in how he plans to bless your life. Don't try to give God a hand 
and bring forth his promises he's given you. Let God do that work. And you just receive by grace. In Genesis chapter 16, Abram and Sarah, who were Abraham and Sarah, had no child. And God had promised that an Isaac a seed would be called. He promised that he would have a son and he hasn't had a son and Sarah would bring forth a son in her old age. Uh, I mean, this old doll's about 90-something. There'll be a prom at the door yet. Who said that? I heard that. Listen. Hagar, the handmaid. Hagar, the handmaid. Why don't you go, Abram, and lie with Hagar, for she will bring forth the promise of God. God didn't promise it through Hagar. He promised it through Sarah. He promised it through Sarah. And so... Abraham and Sarah decide that he would lie with Hagar and what would happen? Give God a hand in the promotion and to bring the word forth that he promised. You know what came out of it? Ishmael. Do you know what came out of it? Our troubles throughout the Middle East and right into where we are today. The nations, 12 nations of the Arabs. A replica of the 12 sons of Jacob Israel. Don't try to give God a hand to promote you because if you just yield yourself to God's word, God will bring it to pass. Notice William Barclay said this, God expects man to take risks in order to be true to him. Pardon me, God does not expect man to take risks to be true to him, but God does expect man to take risks in order to enhance his own prestige. In other words, God knows you're going to take risks to try and push it on. He says, but if you're trusting in me, you don't need to. Jesus, again, with the sword of the Spirit, he said, it is written. In Psalm 75, if you'll flick over to it with me briefly, please. Psalm 75. Here's a little word for all of us, each and every one of us. Verses 6. And seven, for promotion cometh neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He putteth one down and setteth up another. God's the one who promotes. God's the one who pulls down, and God's the one who sets up. You and I have to believe in our lives that that thing that you can't wait for, that you can't see any hope in. You and I must believe in our lives that he is still on the throne. That he's still God who is sovereign. You know what the sovereign is? Sovereign is he's in charge of everything. Sovereign means God is in charge of everything at all times. Including your life. Including your problem. God's always in charge. You and I say, well, we hear about the permissible will of God. And I understand there's a teaching about the permissible will of God. When we go out of God's will, really, you're either in God's will or you're not. <laughs> permissible will is just really another word for saying you're out of God's will and in his grace, he just kept his word. That's really all it is. Notice, using God's word for your own gain 
for your own means and ends or prestige is to tempt God. I want you to hear that. It's to tempt God. I know a man and he got to know me well. He got to hear the odd thing about the church. Started to be in a trusted position one time. What I didn't know, he was going and prophesying to people because he knew their, their position. I heard about it. I was furious. His mom was in a trusted position. But he starts prophesying as if he could read their hearts and their minds. And I said, see what you're doing? That is not of God. Notice what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. If you'll turn to it with me, please. Ephesians chapter 2, please. Galatians, Ephesians, and Philippians, Colossians. Ephesians chapter 2. And just let your eye run down just for a couple of verses or so. Verse 6 says, And the Lord hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice. He's raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Underline, raised us up. And then made us, secondly, made us sit. He's raised us up, made us sit. In other words, everything from his word, even when the devil comes, is who you are in Christ. He raised you up. He causes you to be in that position and makes you sit. Now we need to look at this because your prayer life matters here. And how you pray and how you believe when you pray. And look, we all struggle with this. Pastors struggle with this. Because we're human beings. Now notice positionally we're looking at. We're spiritually raised up with Christ from death unto life. When we're saved, when we're lost, now we're now we're found, we were darkness, now we're in light. And now Christ, who died for us, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God. So positionally, that's where we are. Listen, positionally, literally our feet are on terra firma. Positionally, we're in Christ. Let your uh, eye run over to Philippians chapter 3, please. Philippians chapter 3. And let your eye run down, verse 20. For our conversation is in heaven. From whence we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile, our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the works whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself notice so christ has ascended we're seated in heavenly places in christ jesus positionally there our conversation is where it is in heaven okay but yet you and i are on the earth it's important to note this brothers and sisters 
We are at this present time positionally there in heaven, but we're not there literally. What does this mean? Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, it tells us heaven is coming to earth. Christ is coming. And heaven will invade earth. Do you want to talk about invasion? Do you want to talk about occupation? You and I are the occupation of the earth. You know that? We are the occupiers of the earth. And the invasion is coming to back us up when heaven comes to earth. Coming to take over when Christ returns. Heaven is coming to earth. And we're, we are still here according to Philippians 20, 21, waiting and watching for the coming of the Lord. Now, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6, Paul says he made us to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, notice this is important. It doesn't say we don't, pardon me, we don't sit in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And that's important. We are not seated in heavenly places with Christ because we're on the earth. We're not literally in heaven. That's not the meaning of it. In other words, you and I are still on the earth, terra firma, but yet how are we seated in heavenly places? And how is it that you and I, our conversation is in heaven? The apostle makes it clear that we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's why I said it's important. In Christ. Christ is the only one ascended into heaven. But he is our great high priest. Who is interceding for you and I in the glory. So now when you're praying. It's as though you're before the throne. Because you are before the throne. How? Because Christ is before the throne. And so it's believing when we pray. No matter the situation, the circumstance, we must believe that when we pray, we are as before the throne as Christ is before the throne. This tells me we don't need another intercessor. We don't need another man, a saint, or anyone else to pray through. Even Mother Mary, we don't need him. All we need is who we have, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when we pray... You and I, when we're praying here, it's as though we're already in heaven praying before our Father. He is praying for us. You see, the high priest in Israel went into the Holy of Holies. And when he went in, he had a breastplate on him here. It was called the breastplate of judgment. And he had 12 stones upon him. 12 precious stones. Each precious stone represented a tribe of Israel. They had their own stone. The tribe name was engraven into it. So Israel were in judgment before God. The high priest comes in to God's presence. It's the only place of heaven on earth, as it were. That little square room in the tabernacle in the wilderness, behind the curtain, and then the temple in Jerusalem. We well, see that they were separated from God, so they needed someone to go into the presence of God and speak for them. Speak to God for them. And the Lord Jesus Christ did that for you and for me. Will you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4 this morning? This is more like a little Bible study this morning. And so the high priest goes in and he intercedes for the children of Israel. He prays 
as though their sins are his sins. Because he's carrying the judgment that is theirs on his breast. And the only way he can come in is by presenting blood unto God. He's with me. By presenting blood. So the animal, the lamb, or the heifer, or the goat, the blood was taken in, and it was sprinkled on all the furniture, and on the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, and there is the Ark, and there is the mercy seat as the lid of that golden covenant. And there is the Ark, and there is the mercy seat, and here comes the glory of God. And the only thing to stop that priest being consumed in the presence of a holy God is the blood that was shed and applied. It's no good the blood being in a bucket outside the tent. It's no good the blood being outside in a bucket outside or a basin outside the tabernacle or outside the temple. The blood must be applied. When God said in Egypt to, to Moses, tell the Israelites to slay an animal, slay the lamb. And he says, take the blood of the lamb, put it on the doorposts and door lintels. He didn't say, when I see the blood in a bucket outside their door. He says, when I see it applied on the doorposts, when I see the, what is it? When I see the blood. Don't say, when I see how good you are, or when I see what you've done, and see how hard you work. Don't say, whenever I see how hard you're trying. He says, look, I'll just look for the blood. God looks for the blood and for nothing else, friend. Brother, sister, God looks for the blood. He says, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No judgment will come. And right down, typifying right through to now, the priest in the tabernacle sprinkles the blood. And the only thing to stop the priest being consumed was the blood on the mercy seat. Mercy was there. The blood was applied. And there he was forgiven. Isn't that wonderful? Now, when Jesus died, when Jesus shed his blood, when the blood of the Lamb was poured out on Calvary's tree, the blood shed for your friend. But it must be applied to your life. It's no good saying, I know the blood was shed at Calvary. It's like the blood outside in a basin or a bucket outside the tabernacle or the temple. It has to be applied. You imagine that high priest coming in once a year and saying, well, here is the Ark of the Covenant. Lord, we're looking for your presence. And the Lord's presence comes down and consuming them. And the priest going, oh dear. But the blood's outside the door. It was already shed. It just didn't apply it. The blood must be applied, brother, sister, friend. The blood must be applied. And so the Lord Jesus, when he died, he went to the grave. And he rose again the third day. And he ascended into the heavens. Look at Hebrews 4, and look at verse 14 just. And then we'll go into verses 15 and 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest. See the word great, it's the word magas. Like where you get something is maga. The priest of all priests. The priest over all priests. The priest that's greater than all the high priests. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens. Notice the word, passed into the heavens. It gives the idea he ascended and went right through into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched 
with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So this great MAGA high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, he has borne our sin in his own body on the tree. He has shed his precious blood. He has carried our sins away from us. And he went to the grave. It's like the old hymn writer saying, Living he loved me, dying he saved me, buried he carried my sins far away, rising he justified freely forever and one day he's coming oh glorious day this is christ we're speaking of the lord jesus our savior so he ascends into heaven he's carried our sins away he's rose in justification risen again and so because he lives we shall live also He's ascended into heaven. He's interceding at the right hand of God. He's at the place of power and authority where you and I are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's like John Wesley uh, wrote. Charles Wesley, pardon me, wrote. The Father hears him pray. His dear anointed one, he cannot turn away the presence of his Son. That's how secure we should feel and know and be when you and I realize our position in Christ. We're not in the pinnacle of a temple. We're in greater still. We're in Christ in heavenly places. The devil comes. You need to let him know this. That as Jesus says, so are you and I. And that you and I can thwart the devil's advances. Notice Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly. See the word boldly. Would you say boldly? Boldly. Would you say it again, boldly? Boldly. See the word boldly. It doesn't mean with arrogance or irreverence. It means you can come with assurance. Look, my children, and I know, you know, especially when they become a bit older and they're, you know, as they go through their teens, they go through different phases. And I'm in a phase now with some with my children. And I'm sure some of you have been or are going through. And you know all the different wee quirks and wee moods. And, the, you know, the grumpy mindsets and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> but I love them. And all they need to do is come to me. They know I'm their daddy. And they know that my ear is always theirs. And as soon as they come to me and say, Dad, I say, yes, dear. And all they need to do is say, and you know, even though sometimes they may say, I say, you're not getting anything else. And they go, you know, the big, I have two daughters, big eyes at me, daddies and daughters, I don't know. And just button those big eyes and I'm like, what do you want? And they'll win me over. But they have an assurance that I'm their daddy and that I love them. We can come boldly to the throne of grace with assurance that he's our father and that he loves us. Need help? I need you today. So positionally, we are in Christ in heavenly places not with Christ, that's different, or else you'd be dead and ascended into heaven, bodily resurrection and all. 
We're not there. Positionally. When we pray as a church, we are the body of Christ. When we gather together, whether it's a few who gather up in the rooms before the meetings here twice on a Sunday, or whether it be the Tuesday meeting we had during the week, we had a great meeting on Tuesday night and we were here worshiping and praising and praying and singing at like 20 to 10 at night. But as the body of Christ, the local expression of the body of Christ here in Guildford, when we gather together, you know what we are? We're gathering here, yes, in this room, yes. We're in heavenly places. Our praise ascends the throne. Our prayers, he hears us. We are seated in Christ, not with Christ, in Christ. And our conversation is in heaven. So notice this. The Lord Jesus in John 3 and verse 13, only he could say that he's one place and also the other at the same time. John 3 and verse 13. Listen to what Jesus said. No man hath ascended up to heaven. But he that came down from heaven. Speaking of himself. Now notice. Even the son of man which is in heaven. I had two Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door a while back. They tried to tell me that Jesus was a damn God or a little God. Small g God. You know that he was a, the, f- the first word of the creation of God and, you know, all this sort of stuff. Jehovah's Witnesses really is a bad term. I know they call themselves that, but really they follow a man called Charles Taylor Russell and the, you know, and the Watchtower and so on. And, and, the, and we start talking about the deity of Christ. He says, you know, he says, Christ was eternal. Well, he was, but he was made. I says, and he wasn't eternal. Simple as that. And they had a iPod, is it? I don't know the names of all those things. I an iPod. I don't use all that stuff. You had an i. They had an iPod. And on this, they had their version. I should say their perversion of the Word of God. And as they're reading it. He says, go to John 3 and 13. Guess what? It wasn't in their Bible. It wasn't in their Bible. And then they says, all of our scholars have went back and re-looked at all of the scriptures. And, and you know what they took a lot of their readings from? The NIV. I says, hold on. Sure, the NIV is corrupt too. How can you get truth out of corruption? How can you bring a clean thing out of an unclean? And they started talking about all their wonderful scholars. And I says, let me stop you. Don't mean to offend you. I says, see, unless your scriptures are coming from the Antiochian Textus, uh, received Textus Receptus, I says, you've got a corrupt version. And I hadn't even heard of it. So I started telling them about the Antiochian uh, text and, and the Textus Receptus and all that. And you know what they said? I, I think it's time we were away. We have to go. <laughs> you see, Jesus, as to his deity, he is the eternal word of the Father. He's not a created being. He always was God. He's the Son of God. 
You see, he could say, I'm standing in front of you as a man. But see, as God, I'm also in heaven. Same essence as the Father. Same nature, one with the Father. In essence, he says, I'm here, but I'm also in heaven. I don't know how you work that out. I'm going to bring this to a close. I'm only getting one point on this morning. Notice what he says in John, pardon me, Mark 4, Matthew 4. I'll get it right yet. Matthew 4 and verse 7. Jesus saith unto him, it is written again. You see, the war is already won. Do you know that? Jesus has won the war. But there's many battles in between. And you might win a battle and think, well, that's it, finished, but he'll come back again. He will come back again. Jesus saith unto him, it is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And the reason we can say that is because the word is eternal, because the word is forever settled in heaven, then the word does not change, which means no matter how many times he comes, you always have the word of God, the sword of the Spirit, take it out and lop his head off. Say this and I'll finish because I want to look at humility next week, God willing. And see humility, people think it's, you know, coming in and you're, you nearly have to hunch your back over and come and say, look how humble I am. Rub your hands. I'm just so humble, we Christian. That's not what it means at all. And we'll look at it more next week. You know what humility is? Or where humility starts by fully yielding under the word of God. That's real humility. Coming under the word of your father. We haven't time to go into it. It'll take another 15 or 20 minutes. So I don't want to keep you late because of the meeting tonight. But in the Lord's will, humility is this. Is that you know the word of God. And you yourself come fully under it. In every area he points it out to you. So the war is won. There are many battles. Again he comes. Again he uses the word. And I'll use this illustration. I've told you this before, but all of you may not have heard it. And I'm just going to use it to close. So when I was in school, it wasn't yesterday either. Sometimes I wish it was. When I was in school, and at one point, look, I left school without any exams. None. I had no interest. I mean, I, I was drunk and hand drugs in one of my exams. And children, I'm saying that because you need to study and do well at your exams. Did you just hear that? You really need to study do well in your exams because you get all the rubbish jobs all your life then after that you don't want a rubbish job anyway I made it into the top maths class nowadays I think GCSEs or whatever they are I, I think it was equivalent to O levels is that what it was then Ronnie you should know was it O levels was it O levels our school <laughs> our school was that it was an old boys school, it was just so rough. I mean, it was just as rough as anything, anyway. Uh, and 
there was one guy who got O-levels in this whole school and he got a terrible time and he got beat up for it and everything because he got his O-levels. They called him, his name was Neville. Guess what they called him? O-level Neville. <laughs> Don't know why I'm telling you that. But the school was rough. It was a high school. It's only a high school because it was up the top of Fort William Park, the hill. And the hill went up like this and it was set at the top. It's, it's, it's closed down now. And so I got into the O-level class. I don't even know how I got there. I didn't even try oh, for miles. And so one day, I'm not long in the class, Mr. Anderson. And Mr. Anderson had a hair in his head. And we called him Baldy Andy. And Mr. Anderson came. And he handed us out all these books textbooks and he gives us all these equations out of them and he says take them home and I want you to do these certain amount for your homework so off we go and my head's spinning when I get home my head's busting with this I'm like what's this about like, I, I'm not going to be able to work this out so I'm flicking through the textbook and lo and behold I go at the back of the book and look at the text and the, and the question and I look and I go where's the answer I thought I was more intelligent finding the answers at the back. So what I did was I wrote out, and I wrote it out, and then I looked at the back, and well, there's the answer, and I just, equals, such and such, equals, and I wrote it out. Handed in my homework the next morning. So you handed up the desk, and while we're doing other work, so Mr. Anderson, he's, he's writing like this, and he's going through the books, and all I hear is, Davidson. Yes, Mr. Anderson, come here, sir. So I come up to his desk and see myself standing there and I'm saying, what's that? He says, my homework, Mr. Anderson. He says, what's that? I says, that's the question, Mr. Anderson. What's that? I says, that's the answer, Mr. Anderson. He says, did I get them all right, Mr. Anderson? You did? He says, do you think I don't know that the answers are at the back of the book? <laughs> I thought he didn't know this. I says, oh, I didn't realize, Mr. Anderson. He says, son, it's not the answer we're looking for. It's the working out of it. It's the working out of it. We know the answer, he says. What's that illustration about? See this book? See if I go to the back of it. It tells me that Jesus comes in Revelation 19 in mighty power, King of kings and Lord of lords. And those of us who are in, it, are in him, that we are on the winning team, that we are on the victory side. Tells me he's already going to throw, he's conquered the devil and he's going to take him and throw him in a lake of fire. The beast, the dragon and the false prophet are going to be burning forever and ever in a lake of fire in Revelation chapter 20. I know the answers, but it's the working out of it while we're here. Every battle that comes, every trial, every temptation, every hurt, it's the working out of where you are. We know the answer. Work it out. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, we're told. It's the working out of who we are in Christ, positionally, everything from spiritually and mentally and physically. 
We need to work it out and understand the war's over. But there's many battles to complete the war, isn't there? Well, we're on the winning team no matter what. Work it out in your life, brother. Let him work it out in your life, sister. Keep trusting. Possessing when you're praying, say, Lord, I don't know all of this, but I know that you're in the heavens and I'm in you. In the spirit, Lord, I'm coming to your throne of grace. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless everyone.